Let's Talk Native is produced at the Eltian Studios on the Cataraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. We break all the rules for native media by peeling back the layers of assimilation and indoctrination. No prayers, no buffalo speeches, and no spirituality shows. While this podcast does not provide a path to spiritual enlightenment, we do take a tough look at history, oppression, and our survival. But the real goal here is to bring our people together by breaking down what separates us. So, welcome to Let's Talk Native with John Kane. Say everyone, welcome to Let's Talk Native. I'm John Kane. Um, I want to continue a little bit on the on the issue that I talked about last program. I talked about the contextualizing of history. And I think it, I think it's important that we do that. And while on the last program I talked about specific events and who was the president when this occurred or when that occurred, we have experienced things that are not just just events. They're oftentimes they are policies that have extended for in some cases hundred or hundreds of years. And that's what I want to talk about. Specifically, I'm going to talk about residential schools, but more generally, I want to talk about assimilation policy, assimilation programs. Because while I've mentioned on previous shows, there are you know policies that include extermination and removal, um, uh, assimilation, termination, and self-determination. There are all these policies that the United States claims to have had during different periods of time assimilation still stands as a policy that has been the most pervasive. In fact, in, in 1819, and now that's over 200 years ago, they, they passed, the U.S. passed the Civilization Fund Act. And this was, again, this is still the founding fathers of the United States that were starting to move away from just the idea of killing Native people and educating us to be like them. And in doing so, like, like Thomas Jefferson, you know, says in his 1803 letter to, um, to William Henry Harrison, we can actually get their land from them just by, by making them more like us, by running them in debt and by, by circumscribing them with culture and, uh, and, and the type of livelihood, all of that stuff. And that's what, the civilian civilization fund act was all about it was about driving native people to assimilate not just in terms of language and culture but in terms of livelihood you know push farming and and other you know white livelihoods upon native people and in doing so even changed the way that we did things like agriculture culturally as Haudenosaunee the women played a big role in the in the idea of food preparation and, and you know, food management and and developing that that supply and that inventory. That also didn't wasn't consistent with with the way white people and the way Europeans did things. So, the whole idea was to push women into things like that were more domestic, and like you know. Um, uh, spinning and uh, and sewing and you know these domestic kinds of uh, activities, take them out of the fields and put the men in the fields. Have the men do the agriculture. And in fact, the the way that the farming was was being 
pushed on native people was about the plow, which required a man's strength rather than the kind of farming that uh, mound farming that that native uh, women and native people participated in. So this this concept of, of assimilation was geared towards how we would sustain ourselves. And, and of course, that played in, into the benefit of, of Americans because the more you could push people away from things like hunting and, and gathering and, um, and the kinds of sustenance that required larger land holdings, the easier it was to divorce us from our lands. But what happened in 1819, and, and again, just because of what I did the last show, that's, that's under a, a President James Monroe was the beginning of really trying to change our children. And so while residential schools wouldn't really become the thing for, you know, for another 50 years or so, that's when the idea of educating and assimilating native children would, would actually begin. So while residential schools may not have be began immediately after 1819, after this civilization fund act, education and promoting English speaking to our children and and the discouragement of our of our culture began you know had, had already begun but it became more of a policy assimilation essentially became a national policy of the United States in 1819 now according to you know, if you Google residential schools, what you'll see is that they say residential schools began in 1860 and uh, they ran until uh, till, you know, as late as 1973, you know, the mid 1970s, some, in some cases, and, and Canada <laughs> all the way to, eight, to, to 1990. But, but it's not that simple because by definition, what they're calling residential schools are oftentimes federally funded schools. Even here in Seneca Territory, the Thomas Indian School was not begun by by the feds it wasn't part of a bureau of indian affairs a, a effort it was initiated almost privately as as an orphanage you know as and it was actually called let me see what um let's see if i can find the name of it here um i had written it down someplace it was it was actually co considered the thomas asylum for orphan and destitute indian children and in fact many native kids or native Native people to this day still refer to the Thomas Indian School as Salem, which is kind of a, a bastardizing of the word asylum. Um, but it was started as a private en enterprise, and then the state did get involved in funding it. And actually, you know, they they brought in an architect to design what what we see today that still remains of the Thomas Indian School. But that wasn't a, a federal program. So this is what was, was already happening. Churches were already having their inroads into, into educating our native children, beginning school. So even before the residential school, you know, policy would become, you know, such a national thing. It was already beginning. And part of it was getting its funding from this um, Civilization Fund Act. But I think what's important, and the reason I want to contextualize this thing is, is so people understand that this is over 200 years ago that this starts. And when you consider that you have a 200-year period of a policy that, although it evolves, you have to understand, well, so who, who was making these decisions? So in 1860s, in the 1860s, when, when residential schools really get their start, we're talking about Abraham Lincoln through much of that. 
And again, I've talked about Abraham Lincoln as it relates to the Mankato, Minnesota uh, execution of the Dakota 38 and, and the Sand Creek Massacre. But residential schools, this idea of federally funded church-run residential schools would again begin during the Abraham Lincoln's Watch. I mean, actually, the first one would actually open up uh, prior to him. I think it's under James Buchanan or something like that. But, uh, you know, we, we don't consider that while massacres are still happening, including Sand Creek, included Wounded Knee, there was already this idea of, of kidnapping and capturing our children and sending them off to, uh, to schools, sometimes hundreds or even thousands of miles away from their home. And this would continue, and it would, and, and it would evolve into, into such a level of abuse. I maintain, and I've said it before, that, that you can track some of the clergy sex abuse that has been in all the news over the last decade to some of the, the, the sexual abuse that took place at these, as, at these residential schools. I mean, consider the fact that children literally were being given to these schools and to these these church-run uh, you know institutions, they these these churches had power of attorney of them over them and by and when I say that them and they could make decisions about what was going to happen to them medically, they could make decisions. In, in fact, they were even entitled in in some of these cases where some of these kids did have some financial um um uh you know, like annuities and that kind of stuff coming. The churches could actually claim them. And, and, and use those funds. So, I mean, these churches literally had absolute power of attorney over, over these Native kids. The parents had none. It was, it was stripped away. So I, I think to, to really kind of talk about this issue in the way that I think, I think we need to frame it is understanding how this, this policy would be adopted, its, its effectiveness, and... And again, what else, what in the world was happening? <laughs> what in the world was happening while this was happening? I mean, I wouldn't, I, I, you, I can't say that the residential schools destroyed our people because in many ways, while we still bear the historical trauma of residential schools, there's almost, you know, there's, the, there's almost a hardening of what took place to native people to survive those residential schools that that carried us and, and that carries us today. Now I'm not I'm not gonna sit here and suggest that we were better for them, not but not by a long shot. But I think when when a when a people even when an individual experiences trauma, there is uh, you know there is a takeaway from it, both negative and, and sometimes sometimes a positive from it. And you know and, and that positive can be a little tricky because the idea of hardening a people really undermines our ability to nurture as parents, as grandparents. It, 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 it broke down the whole family relationship, both the bonds that exist between sisters and, and, and the, and the female line and the role that, that, that uncles and, and the male lines, uh, you know, played with, with, with children. In fact, the whole idea of, uh, of creating these, these, um, I, I want to call them ceremonies, I guess, but the, the practice of um, 
of rites of passage, you know, for for girls and men. That that, that disappeared for girls and boys, I should say. That disappeared. That was wiped out. And in fact, we're there's an effort today to to rekindle some of that those rites of passages and and the ceremonies and the training and all that stuff that goes with it because that was wiped out by residential schools. You know, I, I think it's important to again running through some of the numbers. It was the 1960s that was when the largest number of Native kids were enrolled in, the, in these schools. In fact, during the 1960s, the number doubled. By the time you get to 1973, there's over 60,000 kids in these schools. So again, let's, let's think about this historically. So while Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement the Kennedys, Lyndon uh, LBJ, Lyndon B. Johnson. When these guys are are you know are making all this no, this news and this and this this sensation over civil rights, native kids are be, still being ripped from their homes at the highest levels in in the history of the United States. It it is it, you know it's almost mind boggling when you put it in into histor historical context. And I think that's why this is so important. It is so important that we realize that, you know, these heroes of, uh, you know, of civil rights, Johnson, Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, you know, <laughs> John Kennedy, all of these, you know, th these historical figures. And while things are changing in the world, the United States policy of, of forced assimilation just continue to, to rage on. And, and let's be clear about some of what's happening here. Yes, there's a there's a scientific interest in in native people. Look, they they you know, I think the Smithsonian still has probably hundreds of native skulls that they had gathered for for study. I mean, by the uh, little six uh, um, the the plus two from the Dakota thirty eight plus two, those two bodies were 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 scavenged from their uh, from their coffins and hauled off to Thomas Jefferson Hospital in. Uh, in Philadelphia to study them. The residential schools were were used in in the same way. L look, there was disease was was allowed to run rampant through it. D by some estimates, the mortality rate w was in excess of fifty percent in many of these schools because of tuberculosis. Look, they they had established poli policies and protocols on how to deal with with, with infection in schools and dormitories and colleges, all that stuff. Didn't apply any of it to native people. Let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. There were the, the use of sterilization. And there's a lot of, a lot of study that came out. And in fact, in 72 or 73, when they, when they, when AIM and others took over the, uh, the interior department, they busted out some of those records associated with sterilization. But the bulk of that sterilization took place at the hands of these, these residential schools and the churches that ran them. I mean, part of their their clinic or their uh, their medical uh, treatment involved thorough checks of uh, you know of of young girls' uh, private parts, and part of it is they you know they they wanted to determine you know, whether the virginity was still in place, intact, or not, and of course there were surgeries, there there were sterilizations that were done. And this is happening while the rest of the world 
is condemning this thing, this, these kinds of practices elsewhere. Now, don't get me wrong. When I say elsewhere, much of what Native people were experiencing during this period of time was the same thing that black people in Africa and Aboriginally, Aborigines in, in New Zealand and Australia were experiencing, Native people in South America were experiencing. So there was this level of racism that existed for indigenous populations was pretty rampant, you know, through, throughout the world. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always, I always feel remiss if I don't talk about what, what, what Hawaii was experiencing as they let white people, you know, live and reside. And even by, by many accounts be regarded as Hawaiian subjects under the, in the kingdom of Hawaii. But the, this, this difference in, in this this racism was leading to what all native peoples were experiencing throughout the world at the hands of white people prim primarily I, I know I, I get called out for for sounding too racist sometimes but it is what it is and 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 in fact you would see folks like Adolf Hitler model wh what his um, treatment of, of Jews and and the Moors and what the Gypsy class and that kind of stuff, after what the United States did, not only to to Native people on battlefields, but what they did to them as they held them as captives, whether it was captive children in these residential schools. I mean, keep in mind, residential schools had already existed for you know 80 90 years by the time uh world war ii breaks out so when when hitler is uh, is doing you know these heinous acts to to jews the united states has been doing it for you know for close to 100 years already so you know and, and i'm talking about residential schools i'm talking about what what children are experiencing and of course the united states also knows at this time that by breaking that bond, that cultural bond, the language, I mean, they, li they literally believed, and, and this was, was pretty well documented, that destroying our language and destroying our cultural connection would solve the Indian problem. And it, it, to a large extent, there, there's some truth to that. I mean, you know, by, by cutting some of that, it was easier for a lot of these assimilation programs to, to go further than language and culture. And look, I mean, I can, you know, demonstrate in, you know, from my own experience as um, the first generation not to, in, in my family or in, from my community to not have been taught the language. They didn't do that without having been influenced by these assimilation programs, by what what they experienced through residential schools, it was it was their way of, of trying to protect another generation from from the abuse that would come. So, I mean, I, as we talk about putting history into context, I think it's really really important that we don't look at, and I, and I said this in the last program, that we don't look at our experience in a vacuum. We, we have to acknowledge that the true hypocrisy associated with what we experience, not just in massacres and land removal, but in residential schools, in their forced assimilation programs, the true hypocrisy is what was happening in the rest of the world. In 1913, 
the rest of the world was already regarding this notion of denationalization, the idea of stripping away somebody's culture and national character and implanting another, uh, another in its place. The rest of the world was already beginning to call that a war, a war crime while they ignored what the United States was doing to Native people and Native children in particular. The definition of genocide includes what will, you know, the removal of our children. It includes the idea of creating the conditions that a people would cease to exist. Residential schools qualified on many levels for a definition of genocide. And yet, look on the Canadian side, and look, and I, I, I don't want to be overly critical of Murray Sinclair, who was one of the guys who oversaw the, the truth and reconciliation process. But when I hear a Native person say the residential schools represented cultural genocide, I said, cultural? You just put a word in front of genocide because somehow genocide by itself was inaccurate? No, putting the word cultural in front of the word genocide is what was inaccurate. Genocide is defined as uh, as taking children. It's not just about killing people, but if you if you commit things like sterilization, that's that's part of the definition of genocide. So when I when I when I see what history is is putting out there in terms of the definition of genocide and understanding that that residential schools not only meet that definition but it was ignored by the international community for, again, genocide, these residential schools existed for over 100 years. The, the policies that would begin genocide was over 200 years ago. And we still today are experiencing some of this, those, those same conditions. So how did, how did residential schools end? Well, I mean, they would begin during Lincoln and Buchanan, but they would end during, during Nixon, supposedly. But they wouldn't really end there because we still had Native kids being, you know, uh, grabbed up in the U.S. and Canada during the, during the 60s and the 70s scoop where, where kids were being forced into foster care and put up for adoption. And when they passed the, the Indian Child Welfare Act, it did have an effect at stopping some of that, but not completely. In fact, one of the, the biggest workarounds when it came to the Indian Child Welfare Act and adoptions was to have Americans adopt native kids from Canada and Canada and Canadians adopt native kids from, from the U.S. That whole border thing <laughs> became, became a loophole around it. And beyond the adoption was just, just plain foster care, which, off, which always was run not by native people, I mean, most Native people couldn't even qualify to be foster parents through most of the, uh, this era. So assimilation was inherent in much the same way that, that it was uh, with, with residential schools. And, I, and, of course, I would be remiss if I, if I didn't, you know, cite the, uh, the slogan that was, you know, established during, for, for the Carlisle Indian School. Kill the Indian, save the man. In fact... Pratt, who, who ran these things, who was a, you know, a, a Civil War um, uh, general or something, I don't know. He, he would cite the Shivington quote, or I'm sorry, the Sheridan quote about the only Indian, good Indian is a dead Indian. And was using that line 
to justify the idea of killing the Indian within within children. I mean, he he hung on that phrase, and that's where kill the Indian, save the man came from. It doesn't come out of a, again, it's not out of a vacuum. It's out of the agreement that most politicians and, and military people held that native people were better off dead than, than living as native people. So that's why you develop an, a, a, an assimilation program. You know, it, it, it's crazy because, you know, the idea that there was a, a bicentennial <laughs> for this Civilization Fund Act that I missed a couple of years ago. I mean, who knew? I, I, did, I didn't even know. Um, as I'm looking back in history and I'm trying to contextualize what our experience has been, more things come out. More things, you know, de- you know, are you know are are displayed to me. So that's what I'm encouraging you, as as the the listeners to this podcast, as the viewers of these videos. You don't have to wait for me to deliver this stuff. You know, we can look at at your own family's history, and when you know when and where trauma existed. Understand what was happening in the rest of the world, what was happening in the United States, what was happening in in this state or that state. Make sure that you put some context to what what has happened to our people and what's happening today. Look, you cannot look at the rest of the world and see social unrest and not feel some connection to the social unrest that's happening in whether it's in Asia or the Middle East or in Russia or, or, or wherever, France. South America, and not put it into the context of our own of our own experiences, what ultimately is our shared experiences. We need to understand that that much of this stuff has happened while <laughs> while people were being touted as heroes and as you know as champions of human rights in in the United States and elsewhere. Again. It's easy for me to cite, you know, what took place during Lincoln's, uh, you know, presidency or, you know, or, or Jefferson's or, or some of these other more famed historical leaders. But we can go right down the line. That's, and, that, and that's why I think this, this expression, Ronda de Gaius, is so important when we, when we use it you know, to describe the president of the United States. I think we, we need to, to understand that even the most short-lived presidents, you know, uh, you know, William Henry Harrison had a track record. He, he only served for a month as the president before he died, but he had a track record already because of the relationship with Thomas Jefferson on what they would do to eliminate us. And, and the deviousness associated with, with the idea that they would cultivate affection from us so they could screw us out of our land. I just think it, 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 is, it is so important to put this stuff in context because, look, as we go through life as Native people and we hear these people who are propped up as American heroes, we need to know the balance to that. We need to know the, <laughs> the, the other side of that coin. We need to know that, yes, you might be propping up George Washington as the father of your country, but he also clearly established terrorism as an acceptable strategy to be employed against the Haudenosaunee, Seneca's in particular. We need, we need to know that. And we need to know that because not only do we have to balance the myths of their, their historical figures, but we have to bring all of that forward. 
I mean, some people say, what, what difference does it make, you know, what happened 200 years ago? Well, assimilation programs started 200 years ago. And we're still in the throes of that. We are still very much experiencing the effects of policies today. And everything from what we're taught in school. I mean, I, I, again, again, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that during this entire time that residential schools are existing is when non-native schools adopted this idea of using native people for mascots. So while our, while our kids were stripped, their hair cut, their names changed, their clothing uh, taken, and every aspect of their native identity is being ripped away as, an Ameri as a national policy of the United States, high schools, grade schools, sports clubs, including what would be sp professional sports teams, are using Native people for their mascots, for their amusement and entertainment, mocking who we are, recreating for their own purposes what a Native person was so they can call themselves redskins and Indians and warriors and savages and raiders and all these other things. All the while, the national policy, and I, when I say national, I mean right down to every individual state, was geared towards stripping Native people of the very identity that white people were claiming with, the, with their use of mascots. So when you ask, why am I so passionate about that issue uh, you know, among all the other issues that Native people face. It's the pure hypocrisy that the mascot issue represents set against the real-life history of our people. The very history that those who claim to use these mascots suggest they are honoring with them. So that's why we need to contextualize history. I want to thank you for listening. I'm John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. Yahweh.